single one of you here joining us in this room. Also want to say a word of welcome to everyone joining us online, uh, whether you're doing it right now as we are live streaming this service or watching sometime later in the week. Thanks so much uh, for being here with us. Yeah, we are in a series right now through the book of Philippians, and we're calling this series Joyful because we believe that God calls us to live joy-filled lives, and we believe that it is through Jesus Christ that we can live joy-filled lives. And we are in the third chapter of Philippians today, starting in the second half of the book. We're gonna be in verses one through 11, so you'll wanna get your Bibles open to those verses, and I'm gonna begin us by by reading them uh, together. Philippians three, verses one through 11. This is the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, writes, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people say, amen. You know, if you were to ask all the important people, all the politicians, all the leaders, all the intellectuals, all the billionaire CEOs and the celebrities and the athletes, this one question, what is the biggest problem that human beings face? What do you think they would say? If you were to go onto the internet and like, you know, crowdsource that question where everyone who wanted to, anyone at all could answer the question, what would they say? You know, it's 2021. What do you think the answer would be right now in the year in which we're living? Would it be climate change? Would it be COVID-19? Would it be the economy or or poverty? Maybe it would be racism or maybe it would be war. I, I think you would get many different answers. But the one answer that would never make the top of the list is the answer the Bible gives. The Bible says our biggest problem, the biggest problem every single person on planet Earth faces is God. Our greatest problem is God. You see, God is our biggest problem because every one of us enters this world with a broken relationship with God. That's our biggest problem. And the, and the, the, the issue is we are not right with God. 
See, here's the reality. Maybe you never thought about it like this before, but everyone on this planet has a relationship with God because he's your creator. He made you. The question is, is God your father or is he your judge? See, do you stand before God with your sins forgiven, he's your father, or do you stand before God and he is your judge? He will judge your sins. That is the biggest question. That is our greatest problem. The Bible tells us over and over again that God is righteous. The Bible often uses this word righteous to describe what God is like, and it simply means someone who is always doing what is right, someone who is holy, someone who is perfect. God is righteous. He always does what is good and and true and right. And that is the problem because God cannot be in relationship with unrighteousness, with unrighteous people. And you know, our, our culture cannot see it, but the Bible demonstrates over and over and over again that all the problems that our politicians and our leading thinkers and our social activists, that they're all working on, all those issues they're trying to confront and resolve, they all ultimately grow out of the greatest problem that we have, and that is that we human beings have a broken relationship with God. So how do we get right with God? How do we repair this relationship? How do we become righteous so that we can relate to our righteous God? How do we solve the problem? Well, Paul, today, in our text, is gonna show us two things. He's, first of all, gonna tell us to stop doing something, and it's, it's what all of us do naturally. It is our human reflex. It is our default mode. It is the way we operate without even thinking about it if we're just left to our own resources. And then second, Paul's gonna show us something we need to start doing. And this is God's true answer. And this is God's only hope for us. It is the only solution to our biggest problem. So let's dive into that. I want to show you first that Paul tells us that we need to stop trying to establish our own righteousness. You need to do that. You need to stop, if you haven't already, stop trying to establish your own righteousness. Now, we've, as we've studied Philippians, I, I've told you a few things about the Apostle Paul. Uh, one thing I haven't told you is what Paul looked like. And the Bible actually doesn't tell us, but about 100 years after Paul uh, lived, uh, someone recorded what tradition had been saying for a century about Paul's appearance. And here's the description. Uh, we are told in this writing that Paul was a small man, bald-headed, bow-legged, with eyebrows that met. Oh, Paul had a unibrow, who knew? And a nose that was long, and he was full of friendliness. That was a description of Paul. And, And though he was a man full of friendliness, the first three verses of this text that we just read, when they were read to the Philippians, I don't think those words would have sounded friendly. They would have heard, and I hope you heard, anger. These were, these were strong words. And you need to understand that Paul's language in these verses is so strong because some false teachers had come into the church at Philippi with the wrong answer, with a deadly solution to the problem we all have. 
Maybe remember last week when we met Epaphroditus, this, this man who had traveled 700 plus miles from Philippi to Rome. He was bringing Paul a gift from the church and he was reporting to Paul about the church, how it was doing. And he got sick on the way, remember that? He almost died. But when he got there, he got to Rome. He, he told Paul about how these false teachers had started infiltrating the church. They had begun teaching some false ideas about how to get right with God. And he would have told Paul about how this confused and how it damaged and how it divided the people in the church. And I think it would have broken Paul's heart. I also think it made Paul mad. See, because Paul was full of friendliness, because he was truly a loving person, I think he stopped and he prayed and he thought and and he responded out of love. But we cannot, cannot miss the righteous anger that Paul feels. Now, there's kind of an introductory comment I want you to notice that Paul writes in verses one. He says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. So Paul is saying to these people that he loves, I want you to know joy. In fact, he says, I'm commanding it. Did you notice this is a command? Rejoice is a command. Do you know the Bible regularly commands you to be joyful, to rejoice, that, that just tells us, among other things, that joy is not a feeling primarily, that joy is a response of obedience based on the reality that we know our God. That's why he says, rejoice in the Lord, because Jesus is our source of joy. Jesus is the only true place that anyone can find true joy. It's like Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, oh God. And I'm just wanting to say, if you don't know Christ today, you're here with us today, or you're listening online today, you need to hear this. You're only gonna find what you're looking for in Jesus Christ. Paul says, by the way, I realize I've said this before. Sometimes people ask me, do you know you preached that before? And I say, yep. Why are you preaching it again? Well, probably because you didn't do it the first time. That's usually the general reason. (laughs) And that's not you, that's me too. Have you noticed how we need to hear the truth of God again and again and again? Have you noticed how you forget stuff you used to know? And so Paul says, I'm gonna tell you this again. He says, it's a safeguard. More more literally, and some of your translations say, Safe. It's safe for you, for me to repeat these things. And I just want to point out right here, this is just one application. We find safety in the joy of the Lord. You ever thought about that? Joy protects you. And one way joy protects us is this. Joy makes us resistant to Satan's temptations. And what I mean by that is simply this. When I know real joy, Satan's temptations are not attractive. They're not interesting. So the question is, are you safe? Are you rejoicing in the Lord? And that's what Paul begins with. But then he moves into verse two and he turns the heat up. And I'm just gonna tell you before we get into this, you don't, you don't understand probably in 2021 exactly what's going on here. We don't feel what Paul is saying, but we're gonna, we're gonna work on that and help us to get there. Paul says, watch out for those dogs those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And I just wanna tell you, verse two here is one of the most explosive verses in all the Bible. And the reason is, Paul is going after these false teachers, 
We meet them in other parts of the New Testament. They're often called Judaizers, and they were a group of Jewish Christians who insisted that all Christians, people who followed Jesus, also had to submit to the entire Old Testament law to be fully Christian. And this would have included the dietary laws, all the ritual cleansings. It would have included even circumcision. And Paul is responding to this almost violently. Because he sees it for what it is. It's an all-out assault on the grace of God given through the death of God's son, Jesus. Now, I don't don't know if you really see it as you read it, but it's really flame-throwing rhetoric. And and we don't quite catch the force of it in English, but I wanna help you with that because in Greek, what's going on here, there are three insults, and they're alliterated insults. They all begin with the same letter in Greek. It's the Greek letter kappa, and it has a K sound. It's K, K, K. And not only this, if you're reading in the New International Version like I am, it only says watch out one time. Well, in the original Greek text, some of your translations will reflect this. It says it three times. So literally, the Greek here says watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evildoers. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. That's what it literally says in English. But I want you to listen to how it reads in Greek. This is what it sounds like in Greek. And you're not going to understand these words, but just listen to the sounds. Paul says, Blepete tus kunas. Blepete tus kakus ergatas. Blepete ten katatomen. Do you hear the, the K? That was intentional on Paul's part. He's driving something home. Watch out for those dogs, kunas. We get our word canine from this. Watch out for those evil workers. That's what it literally says. Those those kakus ergatas. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh, katatome. And this... (laughs) This is actually loaded with so much. There's there's a lot of sarcasm here. What Paul is actually doing, he's taking the Judaizers' own ideas of their virtues and he's turning them against them. He calls them dogs. Now, I think we kind of get today, you don't really go around calling people dogs, right? You know, we, we, we just don't really do that, even though we like dogs, and it's even more than that here. We need to set aside our idea of what a dog is like. You know, they would have never said back then a dog was man's best friend. They would not have kept dogs in the house because dogs in Paul's days were coyote-like scavengers. They fed on roadkill, on carrion, on garbage. And for Jews, it was even worse because Jews, were, Jews saw dogs as a perfect image of what was unclean. And so they just used this word dog as an insult for people who didn't keep the dietary laws, i.e. the people who weren't righteous like us. That's what they referred to them as. But Paul, he says, you Judaizers, you're the real unclean dogs because you are adding to the gospel See, their teaching was saying, hear hear this, the cross wasn't enough, what Jesus did wasn't enough. We, as human beings, we have to add something to what Jesus did. I, I think if Paul had lived about 20 years ago, he would have been asking who let the dogs out. <laughs> because he will not tolerate anything that desecrates the gospel, anything that adds to the gospel. 
He, he calls them evildoers. It's literally the, the evil workers. And it is a, a pun on their claim, these Judaizers claim to be doing the works of the law. Paul says, no, when you trade in grace for works, you're doing evil. You're working evil. He says, mutilators of the flesh. This was the greatest insult of all. He takes the Greek word for circumcision, which is pronounced peritome, and he replaces it with the word katatome. And so what Paul is saying is that their greatest source of pride was a sure sign that they were not a part of the true people of God. Paul says it's actually the opposite of what these false teachers are teaching. This is what he says in verse three. He says, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Jesus Christ and who put no confidence in the flesh. And he's beginning in this verse to, to kind of unfold, unpack, reveal what is a relationship with God, what it really looks like. And he says that it is the Christians who are the true circumcision. And, and that means, in an ironic reversal, it's the Judaizers who are the new Gentiles. And that... <laughs> That would have infuriated them. Paul says well, what it means to follow God is we serve God by his spirit. And so we're beginning to see a little bit of this getting right with God. It has something to do with experiencing God's spirit. He says, next, we boast in Christ Jesus. So getting right with God, it's about boasting, not in yourself, not in your achievements, but only in Jesus. Third, Paul says, the one who's truly circumcised, truly right with God, that is the person who puts no confidence in the flesh. And, and a good way to translate this word flesh would just be with the word self. Your, your flesh is essentially yourself, who you are, what you think, what you do. And so we're beginning to see that where we put our confidence, where we put our faith, it is central to getting right with God. And here's the thing you need to keep in mind. Every person on this planet operates by faith every day. You probably don't think about that, but it's true. I mean, we take vaccines and we take other medicines because we trust doctors. And I'm not talking about whether that's a good idea or not, okay? I'm just saying we do it. We board airplanes because we have faith they will fly and not crash, and some of you don't fly because you have no faith, right? <laughs> we put our money in banks because we have faith they're gonna protect our money in the Bay Area. We drive on bridges all the time believing that those bridges will hold us, our car, and the thousands of other cars that are crossing you know, uh, this bridge. But we also all operate by faith in, in matters of life and death. You understand this. Everyone believes something about eternity, even the atheist. Everyone believes something about eternity. Everyone is trusting in what they think will happen and living their life in accordance with that mindset. We all operate on faith. Now, Paul is gonna make a, a, a big deal about this in a few verses, but as he opens verse, uh, chapter three, he, he's beginning to introduce and address this topic of faith because for Paul, the most destructive thing a person can ever do is place faith in themselves. Do you see how countercultural that is? Because most of us have grown up every day being told at school, being told on the movies we watch, especially if you love Disney, right? Being told we must place faith where? In ourselves. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible never says that. 
and Paul is making this clear. This is why Paul's getting so heated in these opening verses because to learn that some people were teaching the Philippians, these people that he loved, that you could fix the greatest problem in the world, getting right with God through placing faith in the flesh, through relying on yourself, that made the greatest missionary who ever lived call people names, hurl insults. And some of you are thinking, hmm, does, does this... Is the Bible saying that I can call people names? And my, my primary response is it's likely a problem that you're so excited at that thought. <laughs> and I will just say, I'm not really sure it's a, a good idea for you or for me to do something that Paul did under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as an apostle, okay? But it would be a sign of maturity for us as a church if the thing that got us the most worked up, that, that caused us to be the most likely to call people names was false teachers, false teachings. And this is one way I think that we can heed Paul's command to watch out. He, he gives this warning three times because the danger is so serious. Then in verses four through six, Paul is warning us against trying to establish our own righteousness by, by telling us some of his story. See, he wants to do everything he can to protect the Philippians. So, so he looks back on his life and he, he talks about how putting faith in the flesh did not work for him, how it did not make him right with God. And, and I think it is precisely Paul's, you know, been there, done that uh, experience that he uses this strong language. He knows how much it damaged him. He knows how it's da it was dangerous to him. You know, it's kind of like if, if, if you're a recovering addict and, and you learn that there are some drug dealers and they've been selling drugs to a friend, you will call those dealers names. You'll tell your friends what drugs did to you. You're trying to keep your friend away from drugs, right? You know the danger. And, and Paul wants us to keep away from any kind of religious drug dealer. So he tells this story. He tells how he was a user for many years, but how it got him nowhere. In verses five and six, you might be able to see it. Maybe you can mark it out if you're kind of unpacking this for yourself as you study. He gives seven descriptions of his past. And the first four, they deal with his religious upbringing, his heritage. The, the last three, they, they deal with what we might call Paul's religious resume. And I'm gonna move through these pretty quickly, just keeping in mind that like Paul, every one of us, we have a reflex. Every one of us, we have a default mode to establish our own righteousness, to look at our own works and place our faith there, and if you've never thought about that before, if you think you don't have a tendency to do that, you're probably trapped. And that's a bad place to be, because you don't know that you're doing it. I'm just telling you, whether you realize it or not, everyone goes here. This is why Paul is so concerned about it. First of all, Paul says he was circumcised on the eighth day. And if you read the Old Testament, you know that God had commanded all of his people, the Israelites, to circumcise males eight days after birth. And, and the truth was not every family followed this command. Not every Jewish family did what God's word said here. And Paul is just saying here that from birth, he grew up in a devout family. He was on this track towards righteousness. Second, he says he was of the people of Israel. So he was born into God's chosen people. He wasn't a convert later in life. He'd always been a member of God's family. Third, he says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. And of the 12 tribes of Benjamin, it was Benjamin that actually gave Israel their first king, King Saul. Do you remember that Paul's 
birth name was Saul. He was probably named after Saul. Do you know also that the holy city of Jerusalem and the temple inside that city sat within the borders of the tribe of Benjamin? You know, Paul is just saying, I've got an impressive background. And then fourth, he says, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, he's saying this to a Philippian church that was a mix of different Gentile ethnicities. There were very few Jewish people probably in this church. And the the point that Paul is making here is that he's as Hebrew as they come, and yet, and yet, this wasn't enough to put him in a right relationship with God. And so he says, you Gentiles, you don't have any of this. You need to quit thinking that you can somehow get right with God by keeping Hebrew laws. Now, Paul, we can note, didn't do anything to merit these first four descriptions. These were just kind of blessings of his birth. Some of us kind of have things like that in our lives. We were born into families that knew God and loved God and served God. But Paul goes on to say these next three, well, these these are things that he worked for. And this is what you might call Paul's Resume, And as you hear these, maybe, here's what I want you to do. Maybe you need to pause and maybe you need to think about whether you might be somehow living under the illusion that the almighty God of the universe is somehow impressed with your spiritual resume. The fifth thing Paul says was in regard to the law, he was a Pharisee. Now, (laughs) this may be kind of funny to us because nobody's gonna say, hey, I'm a Pharisee. Right? We would never brag about that. We see this as a negative term. But back then, in Paul's day, it was a proud term. The Pharisees were like the Navy SEALs, the Army Rangers spiritually. You know, they were, they were the elite of the elite. They were the most respected group in Israel. There was only about 6,000 of them. It took a year's probation for admission. And Paul had voluntarily bound himself to be a Pharisee, which meant keeping hundreds of of commands. He was the son of a Pharisee. He was the disciple of a Pharisee. In other words, he's saying he had achieved the ultimate in religious elitism, but then he moves beyond that. Sixth, he says he was one of those people like who gave 110%. Verse six says, as for zeal persecuting the church. And Paul had decided that Christianity was wrong, and so he lived with an incredible intensity for what he thought was God's cause. He, he terrorized Christ followers that he, he, he put them to death, he put them in prison, he did all of those things because he thought this would make him more righteous. And Paul, Paul kept the religious laws on top of all of this at an unparalleled level of excellence. He says, finally, as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. And what he meant is that he was just He was blameless in his outward conduct. Maybe you've heard a pastor talk about how by Jesus' time, the 10 commandments that God gave to his people in the Old Testament had had grown and expanded and been added to until there were 613 different commandments that faithful uh, Jewish people were supposed to keep. Paul is saying, I knew and I memorized and I kept every single one of those commandments and sub-commandments. There were positive admonitions. There were negative prohibitions. I mean, who here thinks you could keep track of 613 of anything? (laughs) And Paul is just saying, I not only remembered all 613, I kept them with an outwardly perfect, flawless obedience. See, this is an incredible 
religious achievement. But here's the point of all of this. Paul's impressive religious resume did not impress God. It didn't fix his greatest problem, which was being rightly related to God. So I wanna stop here and ask you to think for a moment. What's your heritage? What in your spiritual heritage are you, are you proud of? What, what's your spiritual resume? What have you done over the years that you have known Jesus Christ that you take some pride in? I'm asking you to think, I'm asking you to consider, are you depending in any way on anything in you, anything you've done to gain a standing with God, to gain a relationship with God? Is it coming to church? Do you think you're scoring points by listening to me? Do you think you score more points if I talk longer and longer and longer? Do you think you score points if you read your Bible and pray every day, if you give more money than you did last year? if you keep commands more faithfully than you used to. See, the the people in Philippi, Paul was just telling them, you can't put together a religious resume more impressive than mine, and neither can we. See, we all, all of us, we all stand under God's words in Isaiah 64, verse six. The prophet says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The best stuff that you can do before God in his presence, it's like a polluted garment. Now this has everything to do with what's missing from Paul's list. Maybe you noticed that Paul says nothing about his heart. And that's not because he read the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of talk about the human heart. The Old Testament constantly sounds the call for for God's people to love God with their whole heart. But Paul doesn't even mention the heart because although he had the right background, he did all the right things, it was just like a polluted garment. And the reason was because what was driving it all was his polluted heart and Paul needed a new heart. See, this was an ancient prayer in the Psalms of David, remember that one? Create in me, O Lord, a clean heart. You can't get right with God without a clean heart, and Paul needed what we all need, which is a transformation, a heart transplant. He needed that to take place in his heart so he'd become righteous. Now this word righteous is both a legal and a relational term. To be declared righteous by God not only means God has passed down the legal verdict in his sight, you are now right. It also means you have now been made relationally right with God. Your relationship with God has been repaired and made right. And this actually requires total transformation. Now this transformation happens when we do the second thing that Paul's talking about in this passage, beginning in verse seven. And here's what it is. We stop trying to earn our own righteousness, establish that righteousness. We start trusting in Jesus alone for righteousness. And that's what verses seven to 11 are about. Maybe you're wondering, okay, how do you start doing this? How do you start trusting in Jesus alone for righteousness? And what Paul's gonna do in these verses, he's going to answer the, the, the how question. But first, he's gonna talk about the what and the why behind his transformation. So what happened to Paul? Well, as Paul moves in his story from verse six to verse seven, we encounter a change. Man, do you see it? Do you hear it? Did you notice it? He says in verse seven, but whatever were gains to me, 
I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So what happened? Well, the key word in verse seven is consider, and it's often translated, maybe in your translation of the Bible, it's, it's translated counted, and it is an accounting term. It's a word used for assessing value. Bankers and merchants would use this word, and notice it's in the past tense, counted, What Paul tells us is there was a decisive moment in his life where he considered, where he counted everything that he had once viewed as gain, everything that he had talked about in verses five and six, everything he'd ever done, his whole religious resume, he looked at it and he saw it as a loss. See, what happened is this. Paul had a reversal of values. And that's the essence of his transformation, that everything Paul used to see as gain, he now considers loss. Everything that Paul had intended as deposits into the bank of righteousness, the bank of being a good person, deposit, 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 he now sees that those were really withdrawals, those were all losses. All his religious savings account had been a harmful illusion because in reality he had always been bankrupt before God. You know, if you begin to get this, you'll begin to understand why Jesus always reserved his harshest critique for religious people. You ever notice that? Sometimes it seems like Jesus goes kind of easy on, you know, prostitutes and murderers, prodigals. But for people like Paul, religious people, Jesus was harsh. And, And the reason is right here. You see, prodigal sons usually know they're bankrupt. They understand they have no credit in their account. It's the elder brothers. It's the Pharisees. It's the spiritual people. It's the religious people like us, many times, who think we got a lot in our account, who think we're good people. Surely God loves us. It's people like us who are often blind to our bankruptcy before God. We think we're good enough to catch the attention of the man upstairs. Surely God's gonna be impressed. And this was Paul's turning point. Uh, This is when Paul is transformed. He, He used to look at his life one way, and now he looks at it and sees it in a totally different way. And I want to just tell you something. We really believe here at Southwinds that it takes a miracle to experience this turning point. You cannot come to this on your own, on your own spiritual effort. God has to work. God must open your eyes to the reality of your sin and the beauty of the Savior. God has to work. And you know, I've been praying. I've been praying that this would happen even today for people here in this room, people watching online, that they would see reality, that they would see who we are in our sin, and that they would see then God's grace. And if you know that grace, I hope you're praying for that right now. Now, the what of Paul's transformation is that he counted what he thought was best about his life, his gain, he counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. And you have to see this, this transformation ran so deep in Paul that in verse eight he says that he counts his former gain, he doesn't just say loss, he now says garbage. 
What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Now, some of you are aware there's something going on here in the Greek text that we don't catch in most of our translations, and it's in that word garbage. Garbage is um, a polite translation of the Greek word. The Greek word is pronounced skubala, um, and it's a very strong, it's a very colorful word. It's almost a cuss word. And I'm not gonna say it that way, okay? But the word means excrement. It's something you would consider as garbage that you would throw away. It's excrement, it's poop. I mean, that's what it is. And I kind of want to drive this home because it's very important to get in this passage. And I'm going to show you something. What Paul's talking about is this. <laughs> so you know what this is, right? You're familiar with these little baggies. Um, you buy them and you take them with you when you walk your dog. You use them to you know, help keep other people from saying bad words, right? after you, you use this and you do what? You, you put your dog's poop in here, right? That's what, that's what you do. And here's what's going on. Paul is looking at his life and, and he's saying, you know, everything I ever achieved, I, I now count it as dog crap. It's a little bag of poop. And this, this isn't real poop, by the way. <laughs> it's just old candy from our kids' ministry, you know. <laughs> kind of looks real, though, doesn't it? See, what's going on here is this. Paul is, is saying that all that he was so impressed with before in himself, everything that he saw as gain, everything, everything, it's just a little bag of poop. And see, you, too, have to experience this turning point in your life to enter a relationship with God. You have to come to the place where you realize the only thing you bring to the table in a relationship with God is this. This is all. You, you, you stand before God, and this is what you have to offer you know, is God gonna be impressed? Is the God of the universe gonna be impressed with your efforts, your achievements, when all you've got is this? When all you can do is come before God and say, well, God, I got a bag of crap. I mean, what now? Well, see, Paul actually answers the question, and I think what he's, he's telling us is that every one of us has to experience a scubala moment. You have to have your scubala moment where God opens your eyes and you see that everything you counted as gain is really just lost, that everything you have is really just scubala. It's garbage. It's just a pack of poop. See, have you experienced this transformation? 
Has your heart been so transformed that all of your former attempts to get right with God, they now just look like scubala, you know, religious garbage, a bag of dog crap? See, have you experienced this reversal of values? Have you experienced a transformation like this? Maybe you have, but also think about this. Maybe like some of the people in Philippi, over time, you have slowly returned back to your scubala and you've picked it up again and you've begun to view it as gain. Paul is saying, if so, you need to know the why and you need to know the how of getting right with God. So, so why, why did Paul, now, and by the way, if, if you're more bothered right now that I use this illustration that I said the word dog crap, than you are that people are dying every day clinging to their righteousness do I need to finish that one? I mean, honestly, if you really don't like it, you should send an email to apostlepaul at heaven.com, okay? Because he's the one that wrote this, uh, not me. But Paul experienced this radical transformation, this, this reversal of values, and it's, it's because of a because. Did you see the because in the passage? See, you answer why questions with because, and in verse eight, Paul explains the why of his transformation. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Why was Paul transformed and made right with God? It was because he encountered a surpassing worth, and, and this word surpassing means better, better than everything else, and here's the thing you need to know about human beings. It's always true. Our hearts are always driven by what we think is most valuable, what we see as surpassing worth. And whether that's being religious or being wealthy or being popular or being powerful or being comfortable or having a relationship with someone, whatever it is, and Paul's heart was driven by earning a righteous reputation before God and others, but then he changed and the priorities of his heart were restructured because he encountered the surpassing worth. Of Jesus. He encountered the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And you see, the, the, the solar system of Paul's life began now to orbit around the Son of God because Paul's eyes were opened, opened to the surpassing, blazing worth of knowing this Son. And that's why Paul threw away his old resume. Knowing Jesus is better, that's what he realized. And, and so this transformation, this getting right, this reason you want your life to change is only ever gonna be because you think Jesus is better. You think it's better to know Jesus. It's more valuable to know Jesus. Now we've examined the, the what and the why, and now we come to the how of Paul's transformation, how he got right with God. And, Verse nine is the central theme of this whole passage. Many have said you can sum up the Christian life in this one verse. It gives us the how-to, verse nine does. He says, he speaks of being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So how do we become righteous? Well, like Paul, we need a righteousness from outside us. You know, think about this. All the religions in the world tell you that the problems lie outside you and the solution to all your problems lie inside you. 
if you can work up enough self-effort or enough self-esteem, if you can achieve enough enlightenment or stack up enough good karma, your problem's gonna be solved. But the Bible, but Christianity tells us the opposite. Do you see? The gospel tells us the problem is inside us and the solution is outside us. The greatest problem in the world is us. It's inside us. We have dark, unrepentant, unrighteous hearts that have rebelled against God and only an outside solution can fix this problem. You know, Christianity is more honest than any other religion about the nature of the human heart. One of my favorite Bible verses tells about how this outside help fixes our unrighteousness problem, how it makes us right with God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul also here is speaking. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul experiences this great exchange of values because at the cross, God made a great exchange with us. At the cross, God did something scandalous. He regarded his righteous son as a sinner so that he could regard sinners like you and like me as righteous. See, on the cross, Christ's loss becomes our gain. Jesus took our sin and Jesus gives us his righteousness. God fixes our problem by placing a cross on the back of his righteous son. And that's how God bridges the gap between his glorious righteousness and our polluted sinful hearts. The cross of Christ, friends, it is the one ladder between heaven and earth. It is the only ladder between God and us and we need to climb that ladder and the only way to climb that ladder is through faith. So, God had his how-to and we also have our how-to How do we get right with God? Well, it depends on faith. That's what Paul says in verse nine. This righteousness from God is on the basis of faith. It depends on faith. Getting right with God always depends on where you place your faith. Paul had formerly placed his faith in his flesh, his own abilities, but that did not make him right with God. And that never makes anyone right with God. You know, the religious pluralist who says that all paths lead to God, that person is placing faith in the belief that there can be no exclusive path to God, which ironically in itself is, you think about it, an exclusive belief. That kind of faith doesn't make you right with God. The average person that lives by you in your neighborhood, in Tracy, Mountain House, or Lathrop, most people that you talk to, they place their faith in being a good person, believing that you know if there is a God and there is an afterlife, then their goodness surely will be enough to get them into heaven. See, the key issue with faith, as I said earlier, isn't whether you have it or not, but what you do with it. It's where you put it. And Paul says there's only one place you can put your faith that will make you right with God. And that's putting it in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the righteous life we should have lived. Jesus died the unrighteous death we should have died. And Jesus rose again from the dead so that when we place our faith in him, God can see us as righteous and God can bring us into a relationship with him that exchange happens that gives us new life, eternal life, and it solves our biggest problem. And then we begin the life of following Christ. 
That's actually what Paul is describing in verses 10 and 11. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, we're gonna talk more about what this is telling us, what knowing Christ means as we continue our exploration of this book. But I wanna ask you right now, how much do you want to know Christ? How much do you want to know Christ? Paul wanted to know Christ desperately. He was willing to give everything to know Christ. And I'm telling you, these words are showing you that that is how you get your greatest problem in this life solved, knowing Christ, knowing Christ. It's only through knowing Christ that you can experience, as I said at the beginning of this message, a joy-filled life. And it's only through knowing Christ that you can experience eternal life. Knowing Christ is the only way from eternal death. Knowing Jesus, it is the solution to our greatest problem. Would you bow your heads and join me as we pray?